Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's a new year, a new decade, and we are appropriately talking about the future today. This is another three articles episode. The name of the game, if you're not familiar with it, it's not really a game. I mean, it's it's a podcast, really. But anyway, everyone brings uh, one article that we should all discuss and unpick and try to decipher what the significance of it is. As it's a new year, and we finished last year talking about the past 30 years and the end of history and the end of the end of history, we thought it might be appropriate to talk about the future, looking forward to the next decade, the next couple of years, the next year even. Uh, so we've all brought different articles, which uh, I've been told not to call futurology, because that's really lame and geeky, and people who do futurology are generally like high on hopium, as they call it, uh, or they're kind of weird dystopian visions of robots coming to castrate you. So uh, it's not called futurology, but they're different predictions of the future from three big mainstream, more business-oriented outlets, uh, because those are the type of outlets that publish such things. Right. Uh, who's going to go first? Why would robots from the future, why would robots from the future castrate you? I don't, I mean, just read the, read the, read the stuff they write. They, the AI, these robots the AI are writing is going stuff? to castrate you. It's like a, it's like AI feminist insurrection that are coming for your nuts. Um, no, I, I don't want to go full Alex Jones. You're um, looking, you're looking, you're looking at some weird stuff on Pornhub, Alex. I think you might need to like, you know. Mate, por- Pornhub is so, so 2013. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know. Uh, so last decade. Right. Who's going first? Um, I think you, you should go first, Alex. I think the longest term uh, vision, that's where we should start and then zoom zoom back to a, closer to the present. So I would nominate you. <laughs> okay. There you go. All right. Okay. I'll, I'll go first. I'll go first. Um, so the article that I've chosen is in Fortune magazine, uh, which I can't profess to being a regular reader of. But it did have an interesting article, uh, and I'll explain why it is, in in quotation marks, interesting, I guess. 25 ideas that will shape the 2020s. Uh, So this is in which Fortune asked 25 of the sharpest minds to weigh in on the epic, disruptive, thrilling, terrifying, and fascinating ideas that will mold the next decade. The future is now, which is a completely unnecessary stand first, but there you go. Um, I'm not going to be, I'm going to try not to be snide throughout this, at least not at the beginning, because I I think there are some important thinkers who are leaders in their field and have a kind of long-term vision, which is worth discussing in in earnest uh, without uh, sarcastic comments. We'll leave the sarcastic comments to the end. So um, what are the predictions? Because there's quite a lot of them, so I'm not going to go through all of them. I've tried to group them together. 
as much as possible and to tease out some themes. So the first one, and, and it's the headline person and uh, on kind of the, under the heading of economy and markets. I mean, that's Fortune's heading. Um, is from Mariana Mazzucato, who uh, maybe listeners will recognize as being this economist who's come to prominence in the past sort of five years, who has looked at the role that the state has played in providing the innovation and the research and development behind a lot of things that the private sector puts out, you know, looking at the way that the U.S. military was behind the, the, the technology for the iPhone, for example. So unsurprisingly, what she highlights is a sort of bipartisan corporatism, saying that innovation is not a left or a right idea. When man went to the moon, it wasn't the left or the right who did it. Whatever, you can take that, <laughs> take that as it is. But her main, her main prediction for the 2020s is that it will feature state and business increasingly working together, that the state, rather than being just a, a bailer-outer of last resort for the private sector, will play a, an increasingly large role in being a investor first resort. Um, and the big point is that we need to focus on a more purposeful system that goes beyond shareholder value. So I think that's quite interesting because one that moves are already happening in, in, in that direction to some extent. Um, but also it's because this theme of a sort of reformed capitalism is a thread that runs throughout this. Uh, I'm going to like bring you guys in on, on this just to comment on it before I move on to the other themes. But let me just uh, tease out some of the other examples of, uh, I guess, ethical capitalism or some, some sort of reformed capitalism that, quote unquote, works better that several of the people that Fortune interviewed um, highlighted. So Klaus Schwab, who is the president of the World Economic Forum, uh, highlights the, uh, the role of that banking might play to um, respond to the needs of the quote-unquote unbanked, which is a ridiculous term for people who don't have access to um, you know, financial instruments. I mean, even just basic uh, consumer banking, basically. Um, and which kind of tries to portray this big need for people to you know, have access to banking um, as a, as a co- sort of... Um, well, I mean, I would see it as financialization's next frontier to provide, uh, you know, peasants in India with with uh, with banking, um, which kind of I, the way he puts it puts a sort of ethical sheen of providing for the needy um, as a way of you know dealing with financialization's next frontier. But the, uh, to take in a couple of examples, uh, an MIT scientist highlights uh, sort of green capitalism, the need for a carbon tax or a carbon dividend system where people are paid out for not polluting. Um, various ways that markets might respond to climate change. Paul Collier, um, who an economist who's written about the, the bottom billion, in, especially in Africa, um, and the economics of poverty, uh, argues that firms w- need to be, or, you know, I mean, there's a confusion between is and ought statements here, but uh, that firms should be more morally load-bearing. So that's basically, uh, actually, I'll quote from it. Now, either ethical capitalism just degenerates into happy talk, or we get serious about it. And I think there are enough anxieties and disaffection around that we have to get serious. <laughs> His example of getting serious was that Japanese CEOs in the 70s dressed like ordinary workers and ate in the canteen. <laughs> but I think what's what's interesting here um, in all these responses is a consciousness from these very high-placed economists, scientists, uh, head of international organizations, representatives of big capital, uh, a real sense that capitalism needs to reform itself because people are getting restless. So thoughts on these, first of all. 
I think you're right about the way in which um, there's the common thread about from these uh, leading economists um, and um, kind of business gurus in the case of Klaus Schwab about which I think uh, and they're you know they're serious and I think they've they're definitely tapping into a new way in which not only that um, capitalism is doing new things such as turning to the state for investment but also that it's legitimizing itself in new ways in doing things which are more than just shareholder value for instance and I think for anybody who's left wing then that means that they should think about what it is that they're what it is that makes them left wing for the things that they demand given the fact that capitalism is explicitly those who explicitly set out to defend capitalism are re seeking to reorganize capitalism in this way and maybe in the 25 ideas that you list from um, fortune magazine it's perhaps paul collier who's most explicit about this um, when he talks about how um, he's defending the single economic system that has improved, um, materially improved human life more than any other. And he's um, very clear that it has to move beyond what it's been doing so far. And so in that vein, then what does it mean to be left wing if capitalism is organizing itself in a way that um, it is seeking to go beyond merely, um, you know, accumulating tremendous kind of concentrating wealth upwards without diffusing it and is legit trying to legitimize itself by how how more it how much more it provides for those who are locked out of um, the financial system and those who are the left behind yeah i mean i i think there's some i think it was a really good article to suggest and the that ethical thread that runs through it i mean i think there's a number of different ways in which it's um, I guess in which it's unpacked. So the first one that you sort of touched on already, Alex, is this idea of responsibility. You know, businesses should have more responsibility. People working in in as CEOs should have, you know, just basically be a bit more moral, a bit more ethical in what they what they're choosing to do. <clears throat> and in some ways, that's not that new. That's kind of ethical capitalism. We've heard heard that before. And I think there's two other ways though in which this these this kind of ethical imperative comes through in particular. And one is with relation to the environment, and the other is with relation to gender. I think this is at least in the 25 um, ideas here. So the the idea that capitalism oh, yeah. will save the planet through this carbon tax or carbon dividend. Um, Melinda Gates. Um, so you know, a, a woman of the of the people, obviously. Um, so she says more women in powerful positions will lead to, and this is quote, quote, lead to new narratives, products and policies that reflect a much broader range of perspectives and quote and solve challenges that will require our collective brain power, like structural racism and rising inequality. So I think it's in, it's interesting that the um, the way this kind of ethical imperative is is unpacked. It's like, you, should, you know, these are the right things to do, but also it makes good business sense to have more um, to have more a more responsible, holistic understanding of what business is on the one hand and to get more um, different perspectives because that helps decision-making um, on the it's other hand. It's, it's different, though, with um, previous incarnations of ethical capitalism, I think, in important ways because if you had said ethical capitalism 10 years ago, what it meant was the body shop 
um, you know, kind of uh, consumer, you know, kind of consumer choices effectively, what kinds of things you buy, whether they're tested on animals, um, whether you buy organic, whereas these points are more structural. So um, businesses should go beyond shareholder value, the kind of view, new viewpoint of the business roundtable, um, demographic and structural changes to um, the labor force and um, the kind of corporate hierarchy in Melinda Gates's piece. Um, and uh, points about investment, how how and where should investment be, um, how it should be led and what kind of investments should be um, targeted in the case of Mazzucato. So it's, you know, there is, a, it is a kind of um, a new idea of ethical capitalism, but one that's distinct from the one of the past, which was much yeah, more consumer yeah. based in the 1990s and 2000s. No, I'm really glad you made that point because I was going to make the exact same one. Uh, it does seem more structural. It takes into account questions like investment, which, yeah, if you look at previous uh, incarnations of ethical capitalism, like as over the 2000s or the early 2020s, I mean, yeah, you had that sort of discussion only happened really at the margins and the attempt to, for example, make fair trade really about um, supply chains, for example, um, but really just resolved itself into a completely consumerist focused one. Um, so yeah, there is some yeah. deeper thinking, but it does strike me that these are in many ways still just extensions of the present and they don't involve a huge amount of deep thinking about what might change, what what kind of structural difficulties capitalism might encounter to such that you know, the extent that I, they yeah, need to be responded to. So it's a projection of capitalism right now into the future. I mean, and I'm glad also George you raised the feminism stuff because it's the same flimsy corporate feminism as you have found for the past 10 years as well, that suddenly more women in the workplace will change the way people interact, according to Melinda Gates. Another one where I, I can't remember who the respondent was who said it, but... Um, instead of women leaning in, you know, be, women being more assertive and so on and being, behaving like men, it was more like women should, uh, men instead should lean out and be more uh, respectful and listening and, and, and so on. And I mean, I think that also is something which, you know, in some ways is already happening. I mean, at least under the guise of the crisis of masculinity. Um, I'm not going to go down mm. this whole, you can listen to Red Scare listeners if you like, they, they do that stuff pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess the, the I guess the, the point maybe on all of this um, ethical capitalism for for the capitalists, not for consumers, um, I think is a sign of a lack of self confidence on on the part of these these um, luminaries of maybe you might call them progressive neoliberalism. You know, it's obviously ties to a lot of tech, um, you know, venture capital um, will transcend the valley in one in one of the big ideas um silicon yeah. valley so i mean i guess that you know that it, it's it is quite interesting that the historical role of the bourgeoisie in opening up new markets it now has to be kind of um <clears throat> framed in terms of uh in, in ethical terms it's not just in terms of you know let's develop let's you know let's use technology and 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 um move human society forward it's like actually it's a good it's a good thing for you to do as a ceo it'll make you feel better um, so yeah, I think it's you take take them all together, and I think your your point is right that it is an extension of the present, and the present is probably a, a relatively pessimistic and not particularly self confident moment for the um, for the, the the contributors, the sort of people who will probably contribute to or maybe read Fortune. Right. And I think that's also played out in two of the other responses which I had highlighted. One, um, a guy from MIT who's an, who's written about doing more with fewer resources, um, which also s 
seems to yeah respond to certain green thinking of you know not so much of an expansionist capitalism and another guy who's a new zealand based entrepreneur who talks about a four day week making people more productive now obviously i've got no uh quibble with a four-day week but obviously you can imagine that coming under the form of well basically capitalism in its future development won't be able to uh, absorb that much unemployment so it's better to redistribute what existing work there is of course for most likely less pay so you know a four-day week for a four days pay rather than for a full week's pay um the other thing I wanted to highlight, I guess, and this would be the last thing I want to highlight from this article before we move on to the next one, is uh, stuff relating to tech. And specifically, you know, as George has already said, a lot of these people are, I guess, from the tech sector, tech aligned, um, which is an exhaustion with tech um, or with the way that tech currently operates and a desire to maybe rein it in. So fortunes editor and this takes various different guises but i've tried to regroup them so fortune's editor who is one of the people one of the respondents here or one of the editors excuse me um says that showing up again will matter so people meeting up face to face he talks about the growth in co-working spaces because even though people can do home office they still prefer to turn up somewhere and and meet people um which i can certainly vouch for Uh, another arguing that tech in the future will be less distracting it'll be less notifications less things buzzing less things trying to steal your attention um maybe a move away from the attention economy uh, about which i'm skeptical uh, another one uh, actually two other ones talk about owning and the right to have uh, your personal data one talking about the right to have your medical data another one just in in general about a different approach to to data in which uh, the the user themselves would have greater discretion over uh, how it gets used and so on uh, and then a final one which says that you know tech won't save us on, on its own that we need transparency so all of these um, reflect the fact that one, I mean, tech was one of the major developments of uh, tech as it's known, you know, like uh, it was one of the, the major developments of the past decade, but also a certain exhaustion with it, probably responding also to a certain popular frustration with it. You know, that all the enthusiasm that you saw at the beginning of the last decade for social media and the fact that it might liberate people and connect people and so on has been completely exhausted and people are very cynical about it now and i think there's a certain i mean the all these thinkers and uh you know uh business leaders and so on uh, are very i think conscious of of this exhaust popular exhaustion with tech yeah i think um the uh phrase of evgeny morozov's this idea of solutionism that tech is <clears throat> is it's more about creating uh, problems that that the existing tech can can solve than developing new tech. If you look at the the 2010s, like what, what what was the tech that really made a lot of money? It was the the fangs, wasn't it? So Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Salesforce. You can add in a, a Apple maybe as well there and spell it in a number of different ways. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's I guess quite quite striking that all of these tech um, new in, new inventions are pretty. Um, they're not ex- not very exciting. This idea that the line between human and bot will disappear and we'll be fine with it. Well, you could argue if you've been paying close attention to the uh, Labour leadership race that that's already happened. We already have some um, some some bots who are who are functioning fairly well in human society. Um, there's no sort of big. That, I, <laughs> there's no, there's no how do big we how do we ideas. know you're how do we know you're not a bot? Well, how do I know that I'm not a bot? I can't even make a little 
You do support um, Brexit, so you're likely to be a Russian bot as well. I haven't, I haven't checked. I can't make a, an origami unicorn either. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, fail the Turing I, test to to trick people. That's the way to do it. To trick, to trick myself. <laughs> um, That's right. No, yeah. but, but it's like, yeah, we're going to have slightly fewer notifications um, on our phone. That's the big idea of the next ten years. Okay, not. I mean, I. I, you know, I think it's important to to just point that out that when you, you know, when you were running through them, I was like, okay, there's, you know, that none of these are, it's obviously very difficult to predict in advance and just pick, pick out the thin air what the big idea for the next 10 years is. But you would hope at least one or two of the contributors would come out with something which you thought, wow, that's really left field, didn't really see that coming, might not work, but at least they're they're sort of, you know, they're putting their neck out. Yeah, it's not it's not big thinking. And I'm also skeptical. Uh, you know, if you look at the attention economy, it's something that's grown, you know, with TV well before the Internet. So, yeah, I don't see that. Sadly, I don't see that coming to an end in the next couple of years either. Right. So should we move on to the next one? Who's got the uh, the next shortest time frame? No, it's the next longest time frame, right? Well, I, I guess <laughs> two sides of the same coin. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, the Economist, isn't it? Yeah, it should be. Uh, yeah, the I'm volunteering, Phil. <laughs> yeah, okay, go, Phil. So, so the world, the the world according to the Economist. What 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 are they chatting, Phil? So this is an article um, from the January second edition um, about Boris Johnson reinventing one nation conservatism. The reason I chose it is because I wonder, uh, this comes out of the discussions I've been involved with um, in with respect to what's happening with the political realignment in Britain after the 2019 general election. And I wonder if um, Boris Johnson might um, develop a more sustainable vision of what um, centre-right um, slash right-wing politics will look like, conservative politics will look like over the next 10 years. Um, not only because he has the opportunity to do so, given the um, given the fact that they've um, beaten Labour into, um, have beaten Labour so badly, but also because of just the, the new um, alliance, the electoral alliance that he's managed to build. So One Nation Conservatism, as the Economist article points out, um, stems from the policy of uh, the late 19th century British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, who oversaw um, uh, British imperialism, effectively the expansion of um, the British Empire into not just its kind of um, geographic expansion, but more importantly, its political um, a political rescaling by which um, Queen Victoria was made Empress of India and Britain was part of the way in which she tried to integrate um, the growing um, urban industrial workforce into um, this new vision of an imperial Britain was by enfranchisement, which is to say two nations, um, the working class, the industrial working class and the, um, the rich, the powerful, the ruling class, the bourgeoisie, would be united into a single nation, politically united by the enfranchisement of um, urban workers with the um, Great Reform Act. So this is the origin of One Nation Conservatism. The Economist article is useful because it runs through its different incarnations and um, through various 
Conservative prime ministers. And it was famously Margaret Thatcher who most decisively cast herself against it because to her, one nation Toryism involved too many concessions to social democracy, which um, which uh, of the Labour, of the kind of uh, Labour governments of the post-war era. So I suppose what's important about this, and The Economist unsurprisingly doesn't uh, make enough of it, is the fact that they're... Um, the Tories are overturning Margaret Thatcher's vision. They're rolling back on um, defining themselves as a party which is essential, which is neoliberal and in the Thatcherite mould, and that cuts against all of the um, attacks which um, the Labour left has been um, pushing against the Tory Party over the election period, which is that it's going to be a hard right, neoliberal, austerian regime. So the basis of the new kind of one nation conservatism, at least in the logic of um, the Tories' new electoral alliance, is that they're culturally, socially conservative, which is to say um, uh, anti, anti um, they're against open borders, they're for um, cracking down on crime. And at the same time, they believe in public public investment, greater state spending, greater government intervention. And with the latter in particular, they expect to um, win win those northern and keep hold of those northern constituencies that they won from the Labour Party in the last election. So it's a useful article. It doesn't go far enough, but I think it perhaps, like I say, the reason I chose it is because I think that perhaps the Tories are in a position to weld together this new political program of what post-neoliberal right-wing politics will look like. Um, and it also ties into what we just discussed from the Fortune article and the Fortune predictions, because capitalism is itself reorganizing um, under the leadership of its defenders and under the leadership in Britain, at least, of the Tory party. So this reorganized, this kind of spontaneous reorganization is being given, is being politically shaped and politically directed, not by the left. So the rolling back of neoliberalism is going to happen, is going to be undertaken by the Tory party, and it will be undertaken in the guise of this new one nation conservatism. Now, how long, you know, how far it will last, I suppose, um, remains to be seen. I suspect it isn't, um, it's an a, the moment, at least, it's an electoral gimmick rather than a political philosophy or a ruling creed. It's an attempt to stitch together a new class alliance to underpin the basis of Tory rule for the next 10 years. Um, I think, as um, as one uh, as a member of uh, the Brexit party put it, that it's um, that Boris Johnson's authority is like a Texas river. It's broad but shallow or broad but not deep. And so I think it, he might struggle more than he expects but notwithstanding that, it seems to me that it's worth considering as a political model for what British politics and also right-wing politics will look like in the Western world, because other right-wing politicians, both in Europe and the Americas, will be looking to see how, how Boris Johnson does it. Yeah, no, I think um, I think that's very well put, actually. There are a few, um, I guess, elements of this program that Johnson seems to be developing that definitely <clears throat> could have much wider significance or could could be quite conceivably copied or or, or taken in in taken by um center right or right wing politicians um across Europe and beyond i think it's it is interesting how that kind of more left basically left move economically and a right move culturally combining this with support for the nhs which of course is 
part an, an important part of, of British politics. Um, and I think one of the authors, so this is quoted in the in the article of the Tory manifesto, Rachel Wolfe says that the manifesto was deliberately supposed to appeal to people with conservative values, such as criminals should be punished, who also rely on public services. And I think that's a that's a constituency that you could see in slightly, you know, with slightly different inflections um, across across Europe. And, and I think with reference to Trump, it's going to be interesting to see if he is willing to take a more communitarian um, approach. It, it, I think it depends a lot who he's um, who he's facing in in twenty twenty. I my 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 question about this is that I don't know to what extent this has any real material uh, impact in terms of policy because you know I at a discursive level I get the idea of the one nation conservatism that uh, that that Johnson is, is is selling albeit it's obviously not the one nation Toryism of the past which had to you know incorporate uh, kind of the militant working masses uh, so you know the relationship's different but leaving that even leaving that historical comparison aside I, I wonder whether this is just stopping the direction of travel of the kind of austerian Tory party that we've known for the past 10, 15 years, um, you know, rather than it being an actual, you know, ex- expansion of state spending, you know, and to, to what degree that that will actually take place. I mean, that's my question. No, but I, I wonder how much whether not, this is just r- rhetoric and whether it's they'll stop cutting. But, you know, it's not going to be um, it, it's not going to be like a, an actual but broadening I- out of, of social services, for example. The issue, I don't think the issue is, um, the issue isn't, uh, and the article makes no attempt to predict, you know, at what level public investment will go or um, how, you know, how far the state might grow as a percentage of um, of national um, spending, whatever. It's not precisely that. It's more how, what the political project looks like. And to that degree, I think the fact that they're legitimizing themselves in a completely different way, and that they're also providing a political vision for the reorganization of capitalism, um, in a ways, you know, which aren't um, which aren't uh, far off from what Mazzucato, who is a left-wing pro-Remain economist in um, at UCL in London, is saying, right? So Boris Johnson has said, um, you know, that there'll be uh, public investment and infrastructure um, to rival the great achievements of the Victorian era. And already um, the troubles with which um, the railway companies are in, in Britain, that they're so dysfunctional, losing so much money, they're so, their services they offer are so poor that there's already open talk, even in the business press, of them being renationalized. And obviously it was the Tory government privatizing them under, um, under the major government, which followed Thatcher. Um, they made such a big deal of privatizing them, and it was seen as such a kind of... Um, tremendous uh, achievement of neoliberalism, privatizing a national um, public transport network, it'll be the Tories that will bring them back into state ownership. So it's not so much, I mean, it's not so much how far they succeed in expanding the state or whether or not they're able to drastically improve social services of the NHS. It's more the fact that they're the ones who've succeeded in putting together an electoral coalition behind a political project legitimized by reforming capitalism in a way that works for a greater number of people, yeah, which I is what the I, left is supposed to do, right? And that's exactly what the conservatives 
have managed to do. And I think that's what's most politically important. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, I don't know if it just feels like this because, you know, being in, in Britain, but it feels like this is a really crucial sort of context. And this question of what this um, Tory government is going to look like is going to be important for the whole of Europe, because in, in Britain we have, you know, the, the social democracy and left populism um, have been defeated. Um, I think left populism in, in Europe is in and social democracy is clearly not able to articulate a compelling alternative to progressive neoliberalism. So what is this reformist kind of um, project going to look like? And I think it, you know, and there, there are a lot of reasons why it might be more difficult than than Johnson uh, expects, not least uh, Dominic Cummings does not seem to be um, on board with this particular one nation conservatism. He's a bit more of a, a tech bro writing 230 page essays on like Nietzsche and the, the earth rise from the moon and all this kind of stuff. But there's clearly no left opposition in in, in Britain at the moment that can that can sort of uh, resist this. Instead, it's the right who's putting forward this this um, project, this program. And then it's going to be, I'm sure, a defensive um, reaction from from what's left of of, of the left in, in Britain to see what can be done to stop it. And it might end up being um, in some ways less less progressive than than what the Tories are proposing. Yeah, I, I'm still skeptical just because it still has to deliver. I mean, that's that is that is the point, not the fact that they've attempted to weld together this electoral coalition, which, yes, has gotten them a, a massive majority, but it still remain. They still need to actually deliver in some sense the, 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 those people that they're kind of. Well, I mean, they've working. only been in power for like a few days. No, I know, but I'm, <laughs> I'm questioning the degree to which they'll actually do this. That's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. Before jumping on this and saying, "Well, this one nation Toryism has succeeded," well, it hasn't even started yet. All he's doing is. <laughs> oh no, 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 no! But it's not saying it. It's not saying it succeeded. It's only to say that um, it's the only viable political vision for transforming capitalism, the one that was offered by the la- the left in Britain by the Labour Party. Um, has failed. So it's, um, but it's striking that it's the right that is offering to reform capitalism in a way that works for more people, rather than on the basis, on the traditional basis of um, of the way in which they've been, the way in which they've been justifying it up to now, which has been globalization, yeah. open market, no, no, social sure, sure, liberalism. sure. Again, it's, so, it's, quite, it's a question of justification at this stage. But if it doesn't actually start to deliver, I mean, this could just be the you know, let's heal the nation kind of discourse that sure. most politicians make when they come sure. into office for the first time. So I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not making any predictions about it. Um, no. So, know. I mean, time will, time will tell. I mean, I'll, I'll make this prediction. So, I mean, it's a safe one. I think the Labour Party will be out of power for 10 years. So they will have an incentive to um, do something, which is to say, because they've got an electoral incentive to make sure that they, um, that they tighten their grip on the constituencies that they've just won. And to do that, they will need to do things um, which are at least visible, um, even if not massively significant, but they might say, open up new bus routes. They might build uh, some new hospital wings and so on. You know, they'll do something. They do something which is visible and tangible in order to make sure that their electoral coalition is safe. Um, And I think also it's, but also importantly with respect to the left that um, none of the lines of attack that the Labour Party is taking or that the left is taking in any way confront 
um, what the Tory party and the conservative um, movement is trying to construct. They're still going on about ethno-populism, that it's going to be a kind of a racial nationalism at the core of it, that it's um, going to be hard neoliberalism, that it's going to be some kind of, um, kind of uh, I don't know, weird com- combination of fascism and neoliberalism. They simply have no fix on because they're incapable of going beyond um, cultural analysis and um, flaunting their own um, kind of moral superiority and criticizing morally. They simply have no grip on what's actually being constructed right in front of their eyes. No, I, I agree with that. I, I wanted to add something to that, looking kind of on a, which this article made me think of in a kind of more European or, you know, wider perspective, which applies to the US as well, which is that the discussion of Tory, uh, the Tories and specifically Boris Johnson as a sort of national populist in the vein of a Trump or even for that matter, an Orban or whoever, uh, really misses the point because he's, those are all anti-politicians. Uh, for all that they maintain the same sort of structures and, and ways of governing as many other politicians did before them uh, of a more kind of traditional right-wing stripe, um, you know, they, they still pose themselves as out- outsiders, as anti-politicians. Johnson's not, Johnson only did that to the extent that he was able to capture the anger around Brexit and the unfulfillment of Britain's exit from the EU. But that already comes t- to an end right now. I mean, even the One Nation Toryism isn't exactly... Uh, a sort of populist incursion trying to explode the old establishment. In fact, he's trying to provide the means for the establishment to reassert its authority, if anything, or to at least provide it with uh, a greater degree of legitimacy than it did in the past, uh, or that it, that you know, or at least to correct the waning legitimacy that it's felt over the past 10, 15 years, and especially in an accelerated form uh, since Brexit. So, in that regard, I think the the, the Johnson case as both in terms of his own personal background as being this kind of super, you know, elite uh, Eton Oxford Tory, um, as well as in terms of what his proposals are, it, it's he's a little bit different from, you know, he, I don't think it's right to stick him in the populist bucket with a lot of the other ones. Yeah, no, I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the article is that it does sort of frame it as there's going to be potentially three sorts of different sets of ideas that, are, <clears throat> that I mean, if, if this is a successful electoral coalition and a successful project, um, that you'd have this kind of one nation conservatism, and then almost on the right, you'd have national populism, and then on the left, this kind of pro-globalization um, um, cosmopolitanism. And I mean, if that if, if that is the case, you can see how that, that reframing of politics as kind of the alternatives or the, the what follows from progressive neoliberalism is is going to be um, pretty challenging for the left because it doesn't really seem that there's any um, <clears throat> none of those options are particularly uh, probably appealing to, to to the left um and i think that you, you know you're absolutely right it is important to make that distinction between what johnson's project is looking like it's going to be developing into and the kind of the reactionary populism um, of Trump. Right. Should we move on to our third article, uh, looking at the more immediate time frame of 2020? George. Yeah. So this is the the Financial Times sort of 20 questions. Guess what's going to happen? Yes, no. On each of the um, on each of the questions, you can actually go 
online and, and uh, fill in fill it in yourself. Um, and if you get the most right and then you, you get the, the tiebreaker correct as well, then you win. It's not clear what you win. I don't think you win anything. You just win um, prestige. You just win honor. Um, but no, I think it's an interesting the set FT's, of questions. The FT's readers are so well healed that they don't actually need material gifts. They just want the recognition. <laughs> yeah. Well, it should surely there should be an incentive um, for to to participate. They and of all, to, to they do of your all best. people, they of all people should recognise. Yeah. Well, they've 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 missed the trick there. Um, but I did it anyway, just to see how see how wrong I will I will be or how or how right. Um, but yeah, I think it's an interesting set of questions because it um, reflects basically what are the what are the questions of 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 interest in the in the coming year um, for for the readers of, of the financial times who are um not to not to patronize listeners but may or may not represent a certain fraction of finance capital so i think it's just interesting to run run through these questions and then i think to see which of them are um the most difficult questions to answer so you have a whole i'll just i'll just go from from the top but do this do this quite quickly and, re- and listeners can obviously go and have a look at the um the article which will be in the in the show notes so will boris johnson secure a trade deal with the eu will labor return to electability will merkel's coalition collapse will salvini return to power will trump win the popular vote will the us enter a recession will india return to the top of the growth tree will there be a war with iran a us war with iran um will <laughs> south african yeah that i mean it's 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 dated already these these predictions that um, the future on that one could could go up or down. Uh, will South African uh, debt acquire junk status? Will the protests in Latin America continue? Will Macron be able to achieve a reset with Russia? Will we see meaningful regulation of big tech? Will Disney Plus change up the streaming game? Uh, will Uber <laughs> post a profit? Will China become a 5G leader? Will we have a vaping ban? Will global carbon emissions fall? Will clo- uh, crude oil? Um, end the year over $65 a barrel. I actually kind of want to buy a barrel of oil, barrel of crude oil, just to see how, how big that barrel is and see what you could do with it. Um, is the uh, long-term bond rally over? Will Europe's banks keep uh, slashing jobs? So those are the questions. I mean, we can go into individual questions maybe and say yes, no, maybe, but taking them as a whole, what what jumped out there to either of the two of you? Well, I mean, the one thing that stood out for me was the their admirable commitment to being boring. Uh, they did not go for the sensationalist answers at any one stage of this. All of them are like, is this crazy thing going to happen? No, probably not. Um, which I think they, they deserve to be commended for, even though it doesn't make for the most interesting or stimulating reading, um, at least uh, on face value. Uh, I, I do like the fact that they, you know, shied away from any spectacular predictions. Phil, what, what, um, what jumped out to you? Just how much I agreed with um, with these, uh, you know, with the calculations um, or the predictions. Uh, so very careful on the U.S. presidential election, because the question wasn't not whether Trump will win, but um, whether or not he would win the popular vote. He didn't win the popular vote last time. Hillary Clinton took um, three million more than he did. He won the Electoral College famously. Um, or infamously and notoriously, whatever. <laughs> famously, and it like, says, as in, he's president, just to remind you. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah. So um, it's making, and it says he'll lose the popular vote again. So, um, which I think is, um, so, you know, kind of a carefully finessed 
but it seems to me um, you know accurate prediction. Um, Matteo Salvini, the leader of the the Liga, who we've talked about um, previously when we talked about Italian politics, that he'll return to power, I think, is accurate. Labour Britain's Labour Party not returning will not return to electability. Accurate again. Boris Johnson will agree a trade deal with the EU. So already all the kind of um, frantic um, discussion as to whether or not Boris Johnson will be able to, uh, you know, whether or not there'll be some another crunch thing and more chaos and um, brinkmanship and cliff edge stuff, blah, 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 all the usual kind of froth over Brexit negotiations. They cut through that straight away. Um, so I think all that, you know, it's uh, kind of building on what Alex said. It's remarkable for how um, restrained and prudent and precise their predictions are in response to the questions. Yeah, I think it's also a question, also a case of how you frame, uh, like you said, with the Trump popular vote, how you frame the questions which you're um, which you're responding to. And I think it's an interesting, it is an interesting kind of prospectus, more in the questions than the the careful analysis of the answers, which, you know, there's not not too many surprises there in terms of what what should be on our radar as a you know global politics um, podcast. I guess the one one that I, one thing which I thought was was missing from it, though, was, you know, talking about Macron's relationship with with Russia. I mean, is that really the biggest question for French politics and society um, in 2020? I mean, not having the gilets jaunes on that list and not having any sort of reckoning with with how, you know, what what's going to happen there, I think, is um is a, is a pretty big oversight. Or maybe what it just reflects the, question, the biases. What would- what would the question be? Will are the, the gilets jaunes, are they going to overthrow it's not Macron? Even, it's not even Clearly the gilets jaunes, it's the, it's the labor militancy that's happening now than the, the, the mass strikes. So, you know, I mean, will... Well, yeah, the I question guess. is, will he get his pension reforms through? I think that's the only question. So, I mean, in terms of crafting, yeah. formulating a question to get a precise prediction, I don't think there's anything you can really mean, you know, you can't formulate a precise question over the showdown with the gilets jaunes because... They're not going to overthrow Macron, and they will come to an end at some point. Um, so it's not, you know, how you f- will it, um, you will can't it be formulate in, a question. Will it be in 2020? Will there still be weekly protests yeah. in well, uh, the, by the just, end of 2020? There's no longer weekly protests already. So, I mean, I think that point would be moot. So, I mean, I, well, I guess when I, it's not maybe the most important question for domestic politics, but I think... Um, whether or not Macron manages to effect a rapprochement with Putin is an important question for um, European diplomacy. So I wouldn't be so um, I wouldn't be so skeptical about it. Is there anything that is missing from this from this list? Presumably, there's some uh, some things which are on our radar, which aren't on the um, financial paper of, of records radar. Brazil. What's going to happen with um, Bolsonaro, given the fact, supposedly, that the economy is picked up because there's um, there is uh, faith in his capacity to um, reform the pension system? So investors well, they, are no, growing. They, they made that prediction. No, but notably, they well, made that prediction I, at the top. Hold on, I was, and, it, and it was proved I hadn't wrong. Finished, I hadn't finished. Right. I hadn't finished. And I was going to say, however, on the other hand, and Alex got into a. A spat on Twitter about this. Also, the deindustrialization of Brazil continues at pace. Without another commodities boom. I mean, you know, the, the, the Brazilian stock markets have been booming the past year, but you still have 
very high unemployment, like greater precaritization and so on. So the kind of dynamism of the internal market isn't exactly taking off. Um, as to what else is is well, actually, one one thing as to the war with Iran. I mean, yeah, that, <laughs> that an answer to that, you know, probably coming sooner than they expected. I mean, I still think that there won't be a war with Iran, and we've seen in the past days a sort of de-escalation. Uh, Iran's retaliation was a kind of uh, a perfunctory retaliation that they needed to go through without escalating matters, and it seems that they've been connecting through back corridors, saying like, we don't want to take this any further. Um, related they, to the, so the FT was right because that's what well, they said exactly. And re- related to that, uh, they asked, you know, will will um, oil hit fi- uh, higher than sixty five dollars uh, a barrel at the end of the year? I note that it is currently at sixty five dollars a barrel. So yeah, we'll see. Um, as to uh, as to as to what's missing, I mean, obviously you could just go through various countries and and but I, you know they've they've tackled most of the major countries in the world. I think one of the interesting ones in terms of where they make a a prediction that sparks will fly, let's say, because all the other ones, they kind of tend to talk down um, any more spectacular predictions, is about protests in Latin America, where they yeah. say that they will continue. And I mean, that would be that would be my inkling as well, because um, Bolivia is still very unstable after its coup. Where will that lead? Um, you know, Argentina will continue to face difficulties and so on. Anyway, so the, the, yeah, I think that's one where... Um, you can imagine the kind of protest wave continuing. I see no reason for it abating. Everyone's obviously like wondering, like, well, what about Brazil, right? Um, and people are maybe still exhausted, but, you know, maybe continuing unemployment, I think. And if you suddenly have a, a spike in oil prices and energy prices, which Bolsonaro says he's not going to he's not going to do anything to control. Right. Um, that, really? Well, yeah, because he's a you know his his man's like full neoliberal, so he's obviously has to keep the yeah. the neoliberals happy and not intervene at all in in energy prices. So I don't know. There's suddenly a suddenly massive trucker strike again, which paralyzed Brazil in in May last year. Who knows? Like the year before last. No, I mean, it, it, and it does suggest that's. Uh, I think that was one of the most difficult questions to answer. All the others seemed to be. Um, pretty much a, a question of just extrapolating some some current some current trends or current divisions but in terms of the um, process in latin america i think it it's i was trying to find a way to finish that without sort of saying we should do more episodes listeners should listen to our our forthcoming episodes on 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 this or, look, or listen back to some of the previous ones but yeah no i think it's um in terms of a conflictual politics i think that's it does show that Latin America is on a bit of a different trajectory in terms of the end of the end of history than maybe um, maybe North America and, and Europe. Well, I think there's there's two things missing from the list. Uh, two really important questions which aren't on there. Uh, first is, will 2020 be the year when Kissinger finally dies? And will 2020 be the year when Liverpool finally win the Premier League? So big questions, I think. Yes. Uh, Yes to both, except that unless <laughs> yes you know, to both. yeah, unless with Kissinger that we unless we get to him first, watch out. I think Henry. that's the one. That's the one thing that we can actually uh, like affect uh, change on. <laughs> Be the change you want to see in the world. Alpha so. Bunga Bunga twenty twenty assassinating Kissinger. All right, that's it for now. Catch you next week. Bye bye. Give me a